So this morning, we are continuing the series of Eastertide. Um, Eastertide is a, is a season between the resurrection and Pentecost. And in particular, we have been looking um, through the lens of the disciples, what they were going through during this time, how they're feeling, what their reactions are, and what can we learn during this time through the disciples. So Dan has so far looked at the perplexed disciples, he's looked at the disappointed disciples, and today we're looking at the doubting disciples. Our text for today is... Nope. Did we do it at the same time? Yeah. Luke 24:35. So if we can stand, if you've got a Bible next to you, if you've got a phone on your Bible, um, check it out. You can read it with me. It's through the New Living Translation. So it's, Jesus appears to the disciples. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognised him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. Take a seat. So Jesus has just appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus. And those those two people came back. And they're in the middle of telling the disciples about how they had seen Jesus. They're in the middle of it. And there stands Jesus right in the middle of the room. And they're like, what? And they're frightened and they're startled. And I don't know about you, but that's a pretty logical response. When you see your friend who has died, and there he is just standing in the middle of the room. And he's like, hey, how's it going? Can I have a feed? Sweet. Jesus recognises their fear and their doubt. And he asks them, why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? The disciples doubted. It's a simple yet really profound statement to make that the disciples doubted. What does this mean for us as Jesus followers? I suspect though that when I say that the disciples doubted, it actually doesn't shock many of us. And that's not just because you know your Bible, of course you do, you know the story and how it ends. But the reason is actually that doubt in our society is really common. A lot of us in the society feel that doubt is actually a real prominent thing in our society. They say, 
believe nothing, doubt everything. If we're, able to, if we're able to explain what doubt is, one of the best explanations I've heard is by a guy called Tyler Staten. He's a um, pastor, and he says, doubt is when we are torn between two realities that we can't reconcile. So it's not belief, it's not unbelief, it's somewhere in the middle. It's often where there is an event or something or someone that has come into our life and it doesn't fit into the story in which we were making sense of the world. And this happened to the disciples. Here they are together and they cannot reconcile that their friend who died, their Messiah, is standing right in front of them. So what can we learn from this history, moment in history? First one is, doubt isn't exclusive for people of little or no faith. These weren't guys that were hanging out with Jesus for three years for fun. They were deeply loyal men who loved Jesus, who sacrificed a lot, who stood with him when others said he was crazy. And they believed in the end the outrageous claim that Jesus said about himself, that he was the son of God, the Messiah. Next one to take home message is, doubt isn't exclusive for people that haven't encountered God. Doubt can be for people that have encountered God. So how often have we said, if we just see a miracle, if God just comes to us and gives us this amazing miracle that you know we want, um, then I would believe, then I'd follow Jesus. Tell that to the disciples. They were there, front row seats. They saw the amazing miracles that Jesus did. He walked on the water, epic. He um, brought Lazarus back from life after death. He fed the 5,000. You know, like amazing miracles. They saw it all, yet they still doubt. Because when Jesus died, their hope died. Their plan, their theology of who the Messiah was and who the Messiah was going to do to change the world, it didn't turn out at all the way they they expected. And they likely felt that Jesus just left them with no plan B, and they started to doubt. I imagine they would have been doubting as to who Jesus actually was. Like, If he wasn't the Messiah, then who was he? Just this crazy man? Perhaps they were doubting the teaching that they heard and the encounters that they had experienced because their reality didn't match with the perception of who Jesus was and what they believed the Messiah should have done here on earth. And they couldn't reconcile it. And we're so often the same. When we're deep in disappointment and grief and in pain, we start to wonder where God is in this. We start to wonder why he hasn't showed up, why he has felt like he's left us, and we can doubt too. How many of us have come to that point in our life, in our point of our faith, where we're like, are we just crazy? Am I just crazy for believing this? Like, is any of this true? Jesus, scriptures, God, is, is any of this true? When I'm praying, is Is actually anyone really listening? Anyone got to that point? And maybe we don't doubt the existence of God. We doubt actually where God is in our everyday life. 
So we may believe in the existence, but we actually doubt whether God loves me personally rather than just us generally. Or we doubt whether God's grace can actually overcome my failure because my failure is too big. Or maybe we doubt that God's power can really change my situation, my brokenness, my sickness. Because good old Susie here, sorry if your name's Susie, it's not you. If Susie here has been praying for like a minute and she's had her healing just miraculously gone. But I've been praying for years and years for mine and it stays the same. Have you ever had that moment where your faith is called into question? Doubting our faith is really common in the Western world at the moment. I don't know if you've felt that. Where there's a global pandemic going on and we're watching people suffer. It's hard to reconcile where a loving father is in that. It's not uncommon for people of faith to be struggling when we see churches around us, when we see churches overseas, to be standing for something that Jesus would never stand for. Or alternatively, seem to be complicit in injustices that Jesus would have stood for. How can we follow Jesus? When people of our faith who we looked up to, maybe they've been heroes of our faith, maybe Ravi Zacharias, maybe Carl Lentz, maybe someone that you know, insert whatever name you want to put in there, turns out to be very, very broken people. And how do we make sense of following the way of Jesus when we have family and friends who are great, good people that have strong and convincing convictions that are so different to the way of Jesus? Doubt is a topic of weight, and it resonates with a lot of us here today. So what do we do with our doubts? Now, before focusing on what to do and how to hold it faithfully, I want to address an unhealthy way that often we have heard of or held with our doubt, which is we vilify doubt. We demonise it. We say we shouldn't do it, shouldn't have doubt, shouldn't have doubt. We think that it's a sin and we shouldn't do it. And I believe that those people that say that and tell us this actually are trying to be honourable to Scripture. They are. Because they hear the Scripture of don't doubt, have faith. But the thing with that is actually it doesn't work. When you just try to push it down our faith and try to bury it, all it does is it pops up in toxic ways. Or we try to avert it. Like anything we want to question our doubts or something, we just like sidestep. And it just pushes us down. And the faith just either... Um, crumbles when someone questions us or it remains stagnant, it flatlines. Tim Keller said this. It's okay. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. It is susceptible to attack. A faith with no doubt leaves no room for learning, leaves no room for wrestling and talking to God and the ability to grow in a real and authentic way. The man that C.S. Lewis loved and was inspired by, George MacDonald, said this, Do you love your faith so little that you have never battled a single fear, lest your faith should not be true? Where there are no doubts, no questions, no perplexities, there can be no growth. So when people's theology has them believing that doubt is wrong, when they say, 
don't doubt, have faith. Often what they do is they're saying, don't doubt, have certainty. And doubt and certainty, oh sorry, faith and certainty are not the same thing. You can hold faith and doubt together. Many of us do. So there is no issue with you going and trying to find the proof and evidence of Jesus, um, trying to find evidence about who, uh, Christianity. There are some great, great results um, and data. If you look at some books and go talk to some people, there's even astrophysics data pointing the way that there is a creator God, and you should do that. But we need to be really careful that we don't start to worship certainty and idealise certainty. Because being certain about our faith isn't our faith. Boom. Faith is not knowing about the way. Faith is knowing the way. Faith is not knowing about God. Faith is knowing God. Faith is whom we trust. And our trust isn't our theology. Trust isn't solely through our minds. It's relational. It's through a person. It's through Jesus. So before embracing and worshipping Jesus, the disciples had belief, but their trust was in more of their theology, their circumstances. It wasn't the end for their faith story, though, and it doesn't have to be the end for ours. Tyler Staden said this again, Doubt is not an intrusion to avoid, but it's an invitation to follow. So what do we do with our doubts? Now, to be able to explain this, I have stolen this diagram and framework by this guy called A.J. Swoboda. Um, A.J. Swoboda was a pastor, um, he's a theologian, he's a professor, and he, doubt, um, he authored this great book called After Doubt. And he explained and said there are three stages in our spiritual journey. So we've got construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. Construction is where we first got our faith from. It is where we have received our first teaching, where we have interpreted it and started to live it out. And then something happens, right? Something always happens. An event, like I said, or a something or someone comes and it shakes up that first draft, that construction phase. And now we're in the uh, deconstruction phase. And we start to question these first beliefs. AJ Swoboda said this about deconstruction. Deconstruction is the dismantling of anything that's been constructed. In architecture, it's a building demolished to make room for the new. In child's play, it's an eight-year-old dismantling his Lego invention. And in theological destruction, deconstruction, sorry, is the process of dismantling one's accepted belief. So this phase, it can be either short, it can be long, it's often uncomfortable and hard. And this is often the um, phase that we just go, we put our hands up and we say, we're done. You know, we, we can't reconcile this anymore. Um, and we think that challenging our first draft in the construction phase is the end. But if we stick this out long enough, we can let the deconstruction phase be this legitimate space to encounter the real and authentic God, who is much bigger and more expansive than we can ever comprehend or for someone to articulate to us. One of the first steps AJ said that we should do when we're in the deconstruction phase is this. We need to go back to our origins of faith. 
for example, when we go see a good therapist, a counsellor or psychologist or whatever it is, what they would do is often they'll revert back and go to our origins of family because that's really important because that's where we have received the truth from um, our parents or whoever brought us up about who we are. And this is where the transformative work needs to be done to be working out what's actually true and what we need to discard. And the same for our theology. When we have issues, sometimes we need to go back to our faith of origins and question whether this is true or not. It's not disrespectful to do this. You know, it can be more respectful about how you do it, but it's not disrespectful to do this. It's realistic. Because every single one of us have been handed a gospel from an imperfect community. So go back to your faith of origins. Wrestle with it. Wrestle with the scriptures. Pray over it. Talk to God. Talk to others. And work out what matches the characteristics of God more and what needs changing. We need to receive the good and let go of the bad. Like the analogy says, we need to eat the meat and spit out the bones. Often, most of us, when we're doubting, we aren't doubting Jesus. We're reconstructing bad religion. So for example, while, example of me, um, I grew up in a small church in Cambridge and I'm incredibly grateful for the upbringing that I had from there, the teaching that I received about who God is and who I am. I'm incredibly grateful. Um, one, one thing I needed to dis- dismantle from my construction, my first origins of faith, was uh, the value of women in marriage and church. Because my take-home message, even though they probably didn't say it, was that, yeah, women could be leaders, but they're more best served as the support, as the assistance. And my dismantling of that and my construction phase was, reconstruction phase was actually women are valued equally, bring their strength to their pivotal women in marriage and church. Say amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> and this was an amazing time. It was not um, easy. But my reconstruction phase was this, is that not just that I learned about the theology side to it, but that my view of God, my view of myself, my view of others deepened because of it. And in the process, I became closer to God. Healthy deconstruction deconstruction, sorry, is that we get to the reconstruction phase, back to the same Jesus, but with fresh eyes. There are unhealthy ways we can deconstruct. The unhealthy deconstruction that possibly you guys have seen is that we go looking for doubt. We glorify doubt. And like I said at the start, our society encourages us to doubt everything. Dallas Willard said this, We live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the sceptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. When we go looking for doubt, there can be the snowball effect of doubting everything and moving on and doubting the next thing faster and faster. And what we do is we end up just dismantling everything. 
We continually deconstruct without reconstructing anything and then there's nothing left. It's like the analogy of the house. If we were to healthily deconstruct a house, what we'd do is we would go to one room, dismantle it and rebuild it again. Go to the next room, dismantle it and rebuild it again. The unhealthy deconstruction way is that you just get a bulldozer and dismantle everything. So there's no foundations, there's nothing left. And deconstruction and doubt is also unhealthy when the goal isn't to get to know Jesus at all. And if we are to be super honest with ourselves, sometimes deep down, what we're doing when we're doubting is that we're really just wanting to do what we want to do with our life. We just want that job that we know isn't going to be good for us or our family. We just want to sleep with whoever we want to sleep with. We actually don't want to take any steps towards forgiveness at all. And so we make a case for doubt. And we deconstruct our faith in order to suit what we want. Healthly deconstruction. Move back to Jesus and fresh and new eyes. So how can we hold our doubts without losing our faith? Now, I talked about go back to our faith of origins. The next one is confession. Confession is just telling God the truth. I think confession, we think that it's just spilling out all our dirty laundry to God and God's being there going, oh, so disappointed in you. I can't believe you did that. Uh, spoiler alert, he already knows. It's not like anything like he's going to be more informed by us telling him. If we look at Psalms, I love Psalms because it's just brutally honest with how they are with God. And you look at the many people in the Bible that God honoured, Job, John the Baptist, people that we look up to, Mother Teresa, C.S. Lewis, Henry Nowen, their life didn't turn out the way that they hoped. They had stages of immense faith and doubt. But even in all their pain and their doubt, they were vulnerably honest and carried how they were feeling and brought it to God. Speak out your confusion, your doubts, your disappointment to God. Make it become a dialogue to him because he can handle it. He invites us to do that. The next one is this. Step towards the most common trap people get into when they have doubt that I have observed is that often we were in this deconstruction, this doubt phase, is that we step away from community. And by the way, I get this. I've done this. So there's no judgment here. I get it because when we're in that stage, right, of um, doubt and pain and confusion, coming into a community like this where it seems like we're all full of faith and hope and stuff like that just makes the feeling worse, right? So I get it. But when we retreat, we say it's just going to be for a little bit. And that little bit becomes longer. And it becomes longer. And what we then do is we find other communities. Because we still need community, right? But we find other communities. And this new community are people that align our um, doubts and our, and our disappointments. And we agree with them. And we come and have this new community and we sit down in our disappointment and our doubts together. And it feels great, right? It's awesome. But over time we find out this. That while we have had our pain numbed, 
hasn't healed us. So the question for us today is this. Who's your community around you? Do they all affirm your doubts? Do, they all, do all your views align in the same way? Do you keep us, your church community, at arm's length because it's easier than allowing people into your disappointment and your doubts? If you are here today and you're wrestling with doubts, know this. You are welcome here with all your uncertainty, with all your doubts. Don't retreat. Step into community. Let us hold your doubts with you. Let us encourage you so that we can be part of this community together. And for the rest of us, we need to make space for the doubters among us. It may be hard for us to hear when people are doubting, but we need to be slow in assuming that people are actually doubting because they want to step away from God. In reality, most of us, when we doubt, we are trying to actually save our faith, and this is the way we have to do it. The last one. Put our faith into practice. So holding faith with doubt, it doesn't mean that we do nothing, and at the same time, it doesn't mean we're faking it either. Dallas Willard again said this, the way faith works is this, you put into practice what you believe. If you are attracted to Jesus, what do you believe about him that you can act on? Experience shows again and again that when you allow people to act on the little they, they, that they do believe, the rest will follow. Belief is more than what we do with our mind, it is what we do with our will. So when Jesus is saying, don't doubt, have faith, he's not forcing us to believe. Jesus never forces anything on us. He's not saying, how dare you not be certain of me and my ways? What he's saying to the disciples and what he's saying to us is this. My disciples, in the midst of all your doubts going in your mind about what's happened and who I am, can you take a single step towards me? Not towards your certainty of your theology, not your certainty of what you think should happen. Can you take a step towards me? One of the most beautiful prayers I love in the Bible is called the Doubter's Prayer. It's about this Father's expression of faith and one of the most honest and meaningful statements about doubt. And it's simple. He says this. He says to Jesus, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And perhaps some, this is what we need to say today to God. Maybe this is the first statement we say to God. Help me overcome my belief. I'm going to ask you guys to stand for me today. And we're going to respond like we do every week by coming to the table, by having communion together. I want to ask Neve to come. She's going to call us to the table and invite us to come. We who are in the name of Yahweh, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. At this table, Te Rongapai is embodied. 
At this table, we remember his victory on the cross. We rest in his presence now and every day. We hope for the future that is to come when all things are made new. So come, Christ, welcome us all. There is always more room, room for friends, old and new. Whether you call him a friend yet or not, he already calls you a friend and has set a place for you. The invitation is yours. You may, ma- you may take your place. May this meal embody his grace that feeds you every day. Jesus, as you become the bro- bread broken for us, may we become through your grace the bread that is broken for the world and the cup that is poured out for all, that we may- might play our part and take your table beyond these walls. In the name of te matua, te tama, me te wairua tapu. Amene. Beautiful. So come, there are stations around. Come get your drink and your bread, your cracker, come back. Have a moment of prayer, whether beside someone or by yourself, and then close up in prayer. <laughs>